Hello and welcome to the Naval Air Podcast. My name is Mike and I am your host. And here we are. We've arrived. We have finally made it to the fourth and final installment where I have been talking about my experiences on deployment. Uh, As a quick rundown, we started out back in... Let's see, we left in February. We, Excuse me, let me be more a little more precise in my language. We got underway in our deployment in February of 1985. Our first stop was Hawaii. After Hawaii, we went to the Philippines. After some time in the Philippines, we went to Singapore. Uh, cruised around a bit. Spent 10 days in Diego Garcia with a... Ceremony for crossing the equator, crossing the line. And uh, that pretty much brings us up to where we are now. At the end of the last episode, I had talked about our time in Diego Garcia. I had talked about, give a little more detail on the crossing the line ceremony. And at the end, I said that when we left Diego Garcia, the TWA Flight 847 hijacking had occurred. And instead of having a war game, what they call a blue on red or red on blue kind of a war game, because the rest of the battle group had gone to Mombasa, Kenya, and we were, that's, you know, Africa, right? In the continent of Africa. And we were on this little tiny island. We were going to kind of meet up. And as part of our meetup, we're going to kind of do a, a little war game. But that had gotten called off because of the hijacking. And we were, the battle group was directed to make best speed back to the Persian Gulf area so as to support any kind of response the United States might take. Um, That's because, you know, we were an aircraft carrier battle group, right? And it's a well-known... And it's a well-known response that when something bad happens, the first thing that's asked is, where's the closest aircraft carrier? So um, the Constellation Battle Group, which we were part of, we were ordered to forego our battle game and get ourselves up there. Now, I don't know if you remember very much about the uh, TWA 847 hijacking. Um, There's a famous picture of the pilot hanging out the cockpit window of his 727 and um, talking to reporters while a terrorist waved a pistol in his face. So that's kind of a uh, iconic photo of that time. Uh, but quick rundown, right? The the um, TWA flight 847 was flying from... Athens to uh, where was it? Italy. I want to say Italy. Um, and as soon as they took off from Athens, you know, some terrorists took over the airplane and diverted them to Beirut. They're Lebanese terrorists, so they got they diverted them to uh, Beirut, Lebanon, and. Um, because, you know, Lebanon was in the midst of a civil war at the time. If you remember, this is 1985. It was June. 
okay, uh, we were there. Okay, I have to kind of do a little mental gymnastics here. We were on Diego Garcia for 10 days. Uh, Memorial Day weekend was part of that 10 days. So, yeah, it was, it was June. It was early June. Maybe even mid-June. I don't know. It was it was June of 1985. The hijacking occurred. So uh, they flew to Beirut, Lebanon, and we were dispatched to get there as soon as possible. Now, now Diego Garcia is six degrees south of the equator. Okay, six degrees of lines of latitude south of the equator. And you know where the Persian Gulf is? It's kind of, and this is oh, and this is the dead center of the Indian Ocean. Okay, so we have to get ourselves back to the Persian Gulf area, which took about three days of constant steaming, not a whole lot of um, steaming around in circles and the usual meandering way we got to places. We were going as, I don't want to say as fast as we can, but with reasonable haste, okay? I also remember the weather being kind of uh, uncooperative. Not that it was rough or ugly, but it wasn't calm and happy either. Just kind of, you know, in between there. So it took about, I want to say, three days to get there. Now, in that three days worth of time, you know, the situation with the TWA hijacking had, you know, most of those things are kind of fluid and it had kind of worked its way around to where these guys were, were kind of like clowns. Okay. <laughs> were, I mean, they flew from Beirut. Then they, they flew to somewhere in North Africa. Algiers, probably Algeria. They flew to Algeria. I want to say, and then, um, then they flew back to Beirut, <laughs> and then back to Algiers, back to Beirut, and it, and and each one of those times it would let people go in exchange for fuel, um, and they would take on more terrorists, and it was it was getting kind of crazy. So by the time we got to back to the Gulf of Oman. If you remember, that was kind of where our normal station was. We didn't go into the Persian Gulf proper uh, through the Straits of Hormuz or anything. We, By the time we got back to what had been our standard operating area, the situation had, I don't want to say deteriorated, that's the wrong term, but it wasn't resolved either. But it had uh, got to the point where there was no response that we were going to be able to support or we were needed to support. Our battle group was not required to really do anything. I want to say, when did the plane... Okay. I think the whole situation lasted... Uh, I think the total of three days. <laughs> so by the time we got there, it was over. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to look it up here real quick. I, I'm... I'm too too much relying upon my memory. We all know how shaky that is. So, um, okay. So yes, ha. TWA TWA flight eight forty seven uh, took off from Athens. Um, 
on June 14th, got diverted to Beirut, Lebanon. Then they flew to Algiers, North Africa. Uh, when they landed in Beirut, they let go of 19 passengers in exchange for fuel. Ha, see? Um, then that was Friday. They went on to Algiers where 20 more passengers were released before heading back to Beirut that night. Um, and then uh, airmen got on. Then they flew back to Algiers on Saturday, June 15th, where 65 additional passengers were released. And they returned to Beirut for a third time, landing on Sunday afternoon, June 16th. So 14, 15, 16. And then uh, by Monday afternoon, June 17th, most of the hostages had been taken from the plane to a secure location. So the three days it probably took us to get there, it had kind of diffused. Um, now, they, were, they made a movie, if you might remember, uh, it was called Delta Force, had Chuck Norris in it. And uh, it was kind of loosely based on these events. Now, you know, usually these, t- not usually, these terrorist actions kind of involve Americans in some fashion. Um, there's Americans on TW, TWA flight 847, and three of them were Navy divers, one of them being Robert Stetham. And Robert Stetham was beaten, tortured, and shot, and they dumped his body on the uh, on the tarmac there in Beirut and it was that that sequence of events is portrayed in this movie Delta Force so it kind of galvanized uh, their response to that um Robert Stetham was posthumously awarded the Purple Heart and a Bronze Star and they named a ship after him the USS Stetham is a Arleigh Burke class destroyer it was uh, commissioned in 1995. Been serving ever since. So, anyway, so that that was kind of a bit of our excitement for that deployment was, you know, a terrorist action, a hijacking, and we had we were on our way to make our response, and by the time we got there, no response was required from the Constellation Battle Group. So we went back to operations normal, um, just kind of steaming around in, I don't want to say circles, but in various <laughs> squiggly line shapes, um, doing, and as far as the air department was concerned and, and the people I was working with, we were in our routine, getting up in the morning, flying for five hours, getting back just in time for lunch, eating some lunch, doing some maintenance, and then flying for five more hours after dinner. Coming back, cleaning the airplane up, getting it ready for the next day, and putting it to bed. By putting it to bed, you recall it's folding up the rotor blades and rolling it into the hangar and all that. Um, So yeah, we did that. And this time our line period was 47 days. Our next import period was going to be in... uh, It was going to be in Bunbury in the in Western Australia. The rest of the battle group was going to the port of Fremantle, which is the port for uh, Perth, Australia, in Western Australia, the city of Perth. Um, so consider the relationship between Fremantle and Perth as the relationship between Long Beach and Los Angeles, that kind of a thing. Um, 
so we did our we did our line period, and then the word came down that we're going to have uh, our next import, which is going to be in Australia. Everyone was excited, and that's where we went. Now, this line period was 47 days. Our previous line period was 43 days. Now, this is 47 days underway, doing the same thing day in, day out. Get up, fly, maybe not fly. I mean, I didn't fly every time, but you know, we had three guys, you know, for air crewmen, for the sensor operators, we had three guys that kind of, we would take, kind of do this rotation. So every third day was kind of like a no-fly day because the other two dudes was, were covering the morning and the afternoon. Unless one of us was super motivated and wanted to fly with the other guy, but by this time, you know, you were taking your breaks where you could get them. So it was you know, our routine: get up, fly, maintenance, fly, maintenance, bed, and you know, over and over again. Now, I also mentioned before that the ship had half a day Wednesday. Uh, we would. The term was knock off ship's work, where we would not do really working stuff. If you had a watch or a duty section, you did that kind of work. But otherwise, if you didn't have that, you weren't obligated to go to your workspace and do daily work things. Um, as the air department, we didn't we didn't follow it along too closely. That was Wednesday afternoon, Saturday afternoon, same thing. We didn't follow it along too closely. Sundays were non-work days through for the whole ship. So everybody was off all day unless you had, again, some sort of watch to stand or duty to stand. And on Sundays, we try not to disturb them too much by flying, by scheduling flying. But Wednesday afternoons and Saturday afternoons were for their department, um, you know, open targets for working for us, so... Once in a while, we got not to, we didn't fly, but most day, you know, Sundays and Saturday, Wednesdays and Saturday afternoons, we did. So while everyone else was not working, we were. Just the way it kind of worked. You know, uh, and and the work was, you know, again, you know, get up, fly, whatever. But if, if the airplane had some sort of maintenance issue, then we would, our work was repairing it. And some of the major maintenance issues we did, uh, we dealt with was we had to change a rotor blade once we had to change an engine once and um we also had like a catastrophic failure of like some sort of oil supply interconnect little thing um that dumped all like the entire oil supply <laughs> it got dumped out of the airplane and we couldn't fly and we had to find where the oil came from, and and uh, there's a pretty neat hole in an in an oil supply line that that we couldn't figure out how it got there because it wasn't near anything else that would that it could rub up against. And a lot of us speculated that somebody came along with a screwdriver and stabbed it that was tired of us flying. <laughs> I mean, ship's company that was because you know when we when we would fly, we the ship would go to what's called flight quarters. Which meant that 
every, not every well most people had some sort of responsibility to be at a certain place during flight quarters you know someone was assigned to be our control tower you know for takeoffs and landings someone was assigned to be our 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 air traffic control up in the air you know that would follow us and we would communicate with there was a group of people that were that had to be out on the flight deck that would be manning the fire extinguishers and the fuel hoses and things like that that when we call flight quarters they would have to you know show up and be ready to do whatever and our suspicion is that somebody on in the ship's company that had to that had flight quarters duty was tired of us doing it every day or something and they wanted a break so but that that knocked us out for a day um what else oh uh i can't remember if i talked about this before but the um the hangar doors you know the hangar doors were oh, easily 15 to 20 feet tall i mean they're they're tall they're big kind of aluminum slabbed things there are two pieces and uh they operate on a motor you push a button this big loud bell would ring the whole time you're pushing the button and it, they would slowly open probably took um like three to five minutes for these things to fully open and then again fully close well we were in rough weather at some point and um the the you know side side rough weather and the door broke we were trying to were we trying to open it the aircraft was inside the hangar and we were trying to open the hangar during the rough weather and the chain that these that moves these doors right pulls on the doors open and close the chain broke so the door stopped moving and you know the people responsible for repairing you know they came out they set up a huge ladder I remember a dude up there and he was trying to get he was trying to get the uh, you know fix the broken link of chain and um you know he got injured okay um injured enough where the you know we didn't have a doctor on our ship we just had you know the equivalent of a nurse really N- not even that um Corman, you know, medic. We had a medic, okay? And the injury was beyond the medic's ability to, you know, handle or fix or whatever. And we, so we had to call for, uh, we had to call the aircraft carrier, which has the doctors, right? And transfer him to the to the aircraft carrier. Well, we couldn't do it because our airplane was stuck inside, and the aircraft carrier had to send a helicopter to take him away. Um, long story short for that is it took him like, you know, a full 24 hours to fix this door. And uh, before he could, you know, get back on a routine of flying, you know, five hours on, a couple hours off, five hours of flying again, then go to bed, that, that thing over and over again for 40 plus days. Now, towards the end of this line period, um, it was it was announced where we're going for import period and we're up in the Gulf of Oman and if you look at a globe you can see that Australia is you know in the southern hemisphere some distance away and so you know when your line period is officially over you have a transit um, the funny thing was the transit to Australia was very similar to the transit from Diego Garcia back to the Gulf of Oman not really rough bad weather but not happy weather calm it was it was it was bouncy okay 
Uh, there was a day where it got really, you know, it did get rough, and they told us not to go outside. They, they say the term is they secured the weather decks, meaning don't go outside where there's weather if you can avoid it. Um, so we didn't fly. We, you know, the weather decks are secured. We don't fly. But what I'm leading up to is we had 47 days at sea, and the Navy has a uh, or did at that point in time. I don't know if they still do, but the Navy had a policy of if um, if you over 45 days at sea, they'll give you two beers. So it's called a beer day, and we had our beer day at 45 days. And your choice was Bud, two cans of Budweiser, or two cans of Bud Light. I chose Budweiser. And the sad thing was, and they weren't that cold. They weren't very cold. Um, that wasn't the sad thing. The sad thing was, at that point in my life, I didn't appreciate a good beer. Not that Budweiser is a good beer, <laughs> but if you haven't had any beer at all, <laughs> Budweiser would taste, you know, even Budweiser would taste, uh, I don't want to say exceptional, but would definitely satisfy a craving right but i didn't appreciate beer so i drank my budweiser's more out of out of uh ceremony or or because i i could right more than i was really looking forward to having my two beers and enjoying them but you know i sat down and we had our we got our two beers we sat around drank them got back to work really how backing how bad bad off can you be on two beers? It was it was also one of those half days of work. It might even have been on a no day uh, a Sunday where we had no work, and it was in concert with a cookout. I no, I don't remember. I, it doesn't sound right. Either way, we had two beers. Yay for us! Right, forty three days at sea. We missed having two beers by two days, and we made up for it on the next one. Forty seven days at sea on our way to uh, Bunbury in Western Australia. Now, we made it to Bunbury in Western Australia. Let's see, we left the OGC as of June, July, end of July, I want to say. Last week of July, maybe. I suppose if I had the, the cruise book around here, I could actually give you the dates again. But either way, it was end of July, and it's in the Southern Hemisphere. So if you don't know this already, the seasons in the southern hemisphere are opposite of the seasons in the northern hemisphere. So in July, you know, late July in the United States, it's, you know, rather warm. You know, it's summer, high summer, dog days of summer, right? Hot. In Australia, in Bunbury, Western Australia, in the southern hemisphere, it is not. It is like, oh... January would be in United States. Where in the United States would you say? Well, Bunbury, Western Australia is probably as far away from the equator as this. Now, this is a guess, wild guess. Uh, you know, maybe San Francisco is okay. It's on the coast. It's a coastal town, and um, so it was chilly. Let's put it that way. It was chilly. <laughs> Had to break out the coats. And, you know, we'd been in hot weather, right? The Gulf of Oman, uh, near the Persian Gulf area, the Arabian Peninsula, these are all hot places in July, June and July. Um, so they weren't, it wasn't hot where we went. Had to break out the the, the long sleeve stuff. <laughs> it was just kind of funny. Um, 
And we were there for five days. Now, the whole battle group went to the port of Fremantle, which is the port that serves Perth in Western Australia, the city of Perth. We, our ship, got the good deal of being sent to Bunbury. Bunbury is a small town. Uh, We were the only naval ship that went to Bunbury. And this town was small enough. They rolled out the red carpet for the American warship. They they closed their one nightclub and had a party for us there. Um, And basically, if you were walking on the street... Now, you know, if you were in uniform, you stood out and they would, you know, basically... They were, they were very nice to you. They'd buy you a beer. That's where I learned about the different sizes of beer. You had pints, middies, schooners. Um, there was a fourth size. I can't remember. Mini? I don't know. Um, either way. But it's not comfortable to travel around in uniform all day long, okay? So that first night where they you know, closed their nightclub and had a party for us. You know, the, the ship's company, again, those that were not on duty, uh, we went and we went out in town that night um, and in uniform and, you know, let them treat us like, I don't want to say visiting royalty, but they treat, you know, they were nice to us. I mean, it was, it was actually pretty cool. Um, after, after that first night, we all kind of started, you know, moving about in, you know, in civilian clothes. But all I had to do was talk and then they could pick you out as a Yank or American very, very, very easily. Okay. Because, you know, we we didn't quite sound like those folks, right? Um, and we were there for five days. We had, we had rented a room at the hotel that was by a lighthouse. It was right on the ocean. I had... Um, I was fortunate where I was able to trade. I traded duty with somebody. Where were we at? I traded with duty some, maybe it was in Diego Garcia. I don't know. But I was able to arrange to not have any kind of duty um, when we were in Australia. So I didn't have to go back to the ship at any point until it was the day to leave. Um. With one except, well, I didn't have, okay, so, but now the five days the ship was there, and they were having tours, they are giving tours of the boat to the locals, okay? Um, I wouldn't know if they do that anymore, let just random people on, but they would give tours to the locals, and and uh, I had to go back to the boat for something, and I ended up spending like two hours, maybe three hours there, helping give boat tours. Uh, the, the rationale being that you help give boat tours, maybe you'll meet some lass <laughs> and, you know, to go out and have a good time with or whatever. Um, have a local show you around, meet kangaroos, that sort of thing. Um, that part of it didn't happen. Uh, didn't meet a lass, but and none that... None that I would, uh, you know, I met folks, okay, but 
you didn't try to pick up anybody. That's where I was going with it. Some guys were you know, into that. Personally, at the moment, I wasn't. Not that um, not there's anything wrong with that. Just, you know, for some reason, my mind wasn't there at that point. So I was just kind of trying to take in the country at that at that point in time and enjoying the 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 fine treatment that the the locals are giving us. So anyway, it was five days. You know, did some exploring, got to know the town of Bunbury pretty well. Walked everywhere. Um, drank my share of of beer again. It's I look back and it's kind of disappointing because I don't I didn't appreciate beer then like I do now and and you know these guys would I mean I, I, you know older gentlemen you know dudes in their fifties sixties hey get on you Yanks you know and come sit down and you know tell us stories or did trade stories and it was just that kind of a thing you know and and I'd drink the beer but again didn't appreciate it as much as I could have if I was doing it now. <laughs> Um, let's see, anything else remarkable, but cold. Oh, um, the, the port, the little, the little, uh, the little pier area was a big wood chipping operation. And, you know, the reason they did it there is because these big, uh, you know, like barges and haulers would haul these wood chips off to other sections of the country is kind of interesting. Um, I didn't get to drive. I was kind of afraid, you know, because they drive on the left-hand side of the road, opposite of opposite of us. A couple of guys did said it was kind of freaky. Um, but yeah, it was cold. It was fun. It was a great five days. Uh, didn't make didn't make made any pen pals or make any pen pals or anything. Uh, didn't buy a whole lot in the way of souvenirs. Took some photos. That's about it. Um, when our time in Bunbury, Western Australia was done, our next stop was to go back to the Philippines. We were, we were, we were now in the, the go home mode. Okay. The go home mode is, is basically where you're kind of retracing your steps back to the United States. Yeah. Go from Australia back to the Philippines, um, our stop in the Philippines was not nearly as long as it was the first time around. I think two or three days as opposed to five. Uh, then from there, transit to Pearl Harbor, which, again, only two or three days as opposed to five. We're trying to we're trying to get back home early. I remember the captain wanted us to get home early. We were due to come back on the twenty sixth of August, and he got us back, which was a Monday, I think. He's got us back on Saturday the 24th by shaving off a day in the Philippines and a day in Hawaii. But the mood on the ship when we left Australia was a lot different than when we had left, say, Singapore or even Diego Garcia because you know we're, we knew we were going home. The date was kind of still nebulous at that point, but it was still... You know, known that we were going to be you know, heading home, so we transited back to Philip to the PI. Now, if you're keeping count about crossing the equator, we crossed the equator in May, middle of May, heading to Diego Garcia. It's like May 18th or something like that. We had the big fat ceremony. After Don Diego Garcia, we went back to the Gulf of Oman. That required crossing the equator again. No ceremony. Went down south to 
Australia crossed the equator a third time. No ceremony. And then a fourth equator crossing back to the Philippines. No ceremony. Now, what's sad is, is that between the first time that we crossed and had our big whoop-de-doo and the fourth time, there were some new folks that had come on the boat that had that didn't get that were still you know untested polyogs right and they did not get an opportunity even though they crossed the equator a couple of them twice to to go through the ceremony and get and get their status changed so the next time they go they would get to haze the new guys so we kind of felt bad for them but you know let's guess they can't they can't break out the the party for every time that we cross the equator, I guess. Um, now, in our making our way back to the Philippines from Western Australia, we still flew. We still flew, you know, kind of every day. Again, unless for maintenance or whatever. We didn't have any weather issues. I remember we flew and we came across these little tiny clusters of humanity living on tin huts on these little islands with no trees or anything. It was really kind of crazy looking. Um, you found a volcano. It wasn't new. It wasn't a new volcano. It was fairly high, but it was just kind of like the top of a volcano sticking up out of the ocean. Um, so just kind of a different... Again, there was a different mood on the boat because everyone was, knew we were going home. We weren't on a line, period. We weren't. We didn't have to wait on anybody to relieve us. We didn't have any... We didn't have any more, you know, uh, items to check off on our list of things to do. We were pretty much done with all kind of like, because like during the cruise itself, during your line periods, you know, there's inspections and there's uh, repair periods and tender periods and all these things that you do to just kind of, that are part of a deployment that now that they're done, you know, I guess we just kind of take it down a notch. You know, we still worked five days a week. We still had our half days off on Wednesdays and Saturdays and all day Sunday. We being the rest of the ship, not the air department. Um, you know, so it, um, let's see what else am I forgetting. I want to say now. Oh. I for, completely forgot about this. In, in June... My birthday's in June. And your flight physical expires on your birth month. And when your flight physical expires, you have 30 days to get a new, what they call upchit, that you're medically cleared to fly. Again, remember I said we have no doctors on our ship. So I got sent to the USS Constellation for five days. You know, here's, okay. Let me quick tangent here. Here's the problem with not doing these every two weeks like when I first started because I've forgotten. (laughs) I've forgotten if I told you some of these stories. So if I told you the story already, you know, you can fast forward a bit. But I got sent to the aircraft carrier to get a flight physical. My own helicopter, my own crew took me to the aircraft carrier. And, you know, supposedly it was arranged via some sort of message traffic that I wasn't privy to. I had to take, I also had to take a bunch of uh, uh, tools that were due for maintenance that on the aircraft carrier is uh, an intermediate maintenance shop that's a, that's 
qualified to do the maintenance on these tools to calibrate them. They need the calibration to make sure they're still, you know, like torque wrenches, you to make sure the torque wrenches are still doing their torque readings properly. Um, that sort of thing. So, <clears throat> so since I was going there for my flight physical, I had to take all this stuff with me. Yeah, I know. Now I know I told this story already. Never mind. Where the doctor's office only opened on a certain day. Dentist office only opened the other day. Turned out I was there for five days. Um, the reason I'm bringing it up again is because when, because I had until the carrier, until we pulled into the Philippines, to go back to the aircraft carrier, and because I was overweight, I was I was three pounds overweight, and I had to go back to the aircraft carrier when we pulled into the Philippines and prove to him that I had lost the three pounds because he only gave me a provisional upjet. Um, so that was something that. I took care of when we went back to PI. I had to, you know, make my way over to the aircraft carrier. I had to show my ID, you know, ask, answer 20 questions on the, at the brow of the ship. Why are you here? Who are you here to see? Are you sure you can find your way? You know, cause, which is a valid question because, you know, aircraft carrier, pretty big ship, kind of like a maze. Found the dude, thankfully, you know, that was my big, my biggest fear was that, you know, he, he wouldn't wait for me and, you know, take off or whatever, but. He remembered that I was going to be there on the day we pulled in. Weighed me, signed me off. Great. So, yeah. Um, so, after the Philippines, we were, like I said, only there two, maybe three days. We left, transited back to Hawaii. When we get to Hawaii, again, only there two or three days. And this is where we take on the Tigers. I don't know if, they, I don't, I don't know if the Navy still does this, but they have what they call as a Tiger Cruise. And a Tiger Cruise is when the ship gets to Hawaii, some people will leave the ship in Hawaii to take leave. A lot of people, when the ship is done with their deployment, they go on vacation for a week or two, right? And some people take that leave in Hawaii. They're in Hawaii. They want to spend a week in Hawaii, 10 days, whatever. So they'll take leave from the ship. This is ship's company I'm talking about, not their department. We didn't, None of us did that. Well, when people do that, it, it, it frees up room on the ship, Freeze up room for food, for sleeping, whatever. And at that point, those who stay on the ship can invite their sons, their young boys, sons, maybe a nephew or whatever, um, to come on the ship and live on the ship for a week. If you're a youngster, say, like me, uh, a friend of mine, you can have your dad come on the ship. And one of the guys in our department had his dad come be his tiger on the tiger cruise. You know, so these people who are going to join you, you know, these are all civilians. Um, they meet you in, they meet the ship in Hawaii. Uh, go down to the airport, pick them up, bring them to the ship. You know, kind of process this them on. Find them a place to sleep. Uh, get their names, whatever. You know, get all that information in case something happens, heaven forbid. And, um, you know, off we go. Now, in the seven days, it's, it's, it's well documented that from Hawaii to home is a seven-day deal, at least for the Tiger Cruise. The Tiger Cruise is seven days. And this is the whole battle group that does this. The whole, every ship in the battle group will take on Tigers, will take on these kids, which is mostly kids. You know, it's some adults, like I said, but mostly it's kids. So we had, you know, 
I think the youngest they could be is eight. So kids from, you know, ranging from eight to, you know, 13, 14. We must have had 30 or 40 of them, I want to say. And, and that's just one more step down for the operational tempo of the boat. You know, we were... We still had, you know, people still had to work. They just didn't work as hard because the kids were around. And the idea is to show the kids what we do, what we did. We still flew. We still, uh, we didn't take any kids flying with us. That's, you know, a little too dangerous. But, you know, they got to watch from the control tower. They got to watch whatever because we still flew. Not as much. We, you know, we stopped. We started dialing back from the 10-hour day business with one exception. In the transit from Hawaii back to San Diego, um, contact had been made of a of a Soviet submarine, and it was some distance to the north of us. And so the battle group commander decided this would be great for all of us who do anti-submarine warfare work to practice tracking this Soviet submarine. So we worked with with the patrol the P-3 patrol aircraft out of Barbers Point in Hawaii, they would, it would be between them, it would be us. We Our ship got actually dispatched and moved uh, to the north so we could be within flight range. Also, the um, the ship carrying the new the new aircraft, the, the Seahawk, the H-60, was also kind of moved to the north. And then... Um, S3s, which are the you know, little jet planes off the aircraft carrier, would also fly up there. So between the P3s out of Barbers, the S3s off the carrier, us, and the one H60 Seahawk, we all took turns following or tracking this submarine. We put sauna buoys in the water, fly around, and listen. Send the you know we would you know data link the data back to the ship, and they would. You know, identify what kind of uh, submarine he was, um, and I'm trying to remember. Victor Three, I want to say it was a Victor Three submarine. Much um, rather common uh, fast attack boats. They weren't, you know, it was not a ballistic missile submarine. It was just regular hunter killer fast attack submarine. Um, so yeah, we had. And the funny thing was, it was a big coordinated effort. Okay, you know, the P-3 is going to follow the submarine from this time to this time. He'll be relieved on station by this you know, helicopter from this time to this time. And then be relieved by this aircraft from this time. So, you know, everyone was getting a slice of time to follow or track this Soviet submarine. Uh, our, our, our time was like from... <laughs> From I don't know eight at night to four a.m. It was it was some crazy god awful time, um, and it, and and I remember it was it would slip too. We we were briefed, we were manned up, and we were ready to go, and I was the one crewing that day. Um, I don't know how it got to be me, just me. I was the junior guy, um, but we we took off. Maybe it was like nine o'clock. And that was the only flight in all my flights in the H-2 where we did the maximum six hours. Typically, our flights were five hours. two Because we could only fly two and a half hours on one tank of gas. 
We'd two and a half hours, come back, fill up with gas, fly another two and a half hours, and call it quits. Well, for this, for tracking this submarine, we did our two and a half hours, came back for gas, did two and a half hours, came back for gas again for our last hour. And the reason the six hours is the maximum is that was, I might have explained this before, but I'll refresh your memory, is that that's as long as this, uh, this particular aircraft can fly before you had to shut it down to grease the tail rotor. The tail rotor needed to be greased every six hours of flight. Um... And which we do after every five, you know, when we do our five hours, we never shut the aircraft down. We'd always grease the tail rotor, but six hours was the absolute maximum. The rotor head uh, was 10 hours of flight time, maximum flight time, but it didn't matter because you have to shut down and grease the tail rotor after six. You would just do the rotor head at the same time. So the effective maximum was six hours. So yeah, we came back, gassed up for a little bit and flew for another hour. And then came back, and that was long. That was long for us because you know we were just used to our our five hour business. And we came back, and I got six hours of listening to the Soviet submarines' propellers chewing the water. Uh, we didn't get any magnetic. Uh, I don't think he was high up, close enough to the surface for us to find him with um, the magnetic anomaly detection gear. He's certainly not. He was not uh, on the surface with his periscope, so we didn't see him on radar. Just sauna boys listening to him thrashing through the water. But it gives me the opportunity to say with certainty that all the training I had gone through, which was to find Soviet submarines and follow them, and, you know, if we had to, you know, drop a torpedo on them, whatever. But I went through approximately 18 months of training to get to this one point where I used this skill for six hours. Take that with what you will. Now, there's other secondary skills that I used every day. You know, radar radar tracking of ships or whatever. But, you know, the name of the job I had was Aviation Anti-Submarine Warfare Operator. And I didn't do a whole lot of anti-submarine warfare for real. I did, you know, we did training. We would practice on American submarines. But actual anti-submarine tactics and whatever against the actual enemy at the time, six hours. So there you go. Anyway, when that episode was done, we did our six hours of tracking the submarine. We landed on the ship. The ship moved back towards the battle group and um, continued to participate in the Tiger Cruise festivities. And we'd have, I mean, we did, they did bingo. We would do bingo on the ship because we... Yeah, so we did bingo. That was one of the things. Um, the kids would be in the combat information center, and they would talk on the ship-to-ship radios and play some sort of game between the ships. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what it was. I wasn't in the room to really kind of watch and understand what they were doing. But the most fun thing that was for me, because, I, I, again, I got to fly for this, was a ship race. The ship race was between the USS Constellation... The USS Fletcher, which was a Spruance class destroyer. The USS Callahan, my ship, which was a modified Spruance class destroyer. It was basically, a, well, actually a separate class, kid class destroyer. But it looked the same as a Spruance. Same propulsion system as a Spruance, let's put it that way. But um, 2,000 more tons of displacement because of the anti-aircraft capability that regular Spruance class destroyers don't have. Um, 
two Perry class frigates. I forget their names. Cromlin. I want to say one of them was the Cromlin. Um, and then two uh, Kirk. Kirk? Kirk class? No. Oh, shoot. Old frigates. FF. FF 10. Old destroyer escorts. They, were, they had their name changed. Um, 1054 class. Crud. How bad is that? That I can't remember something uh, as simple as that. They weren't Kirk class. What class were they? Um... I'm gonna gonna tell you right now. Uh, no, Kirk it wasn't Kirk. Kirk was 1087. Um, shoot. Uh, Knox. God bless America. Knox class destroyer <laughs> escort reclassified as frigates. Um. So yeah, Knox class frigates. There. I don't know if there's any of these left. Uh, in the Navy. Um. Anyway, so USS Constellation aircraft carrier, conventionally powered, steam-powered boat. Um, the two Spruance-type boats were, were gas turbine, uh, four gas turbine engines, two engines per shaft. You know, we already told you a story about how the engine got replaced. Two Perry-class frigates, which were also gas turbine, but they were single shaft. I don't know if they had two motors in them or not. And then the two Knox class frigates, which are steam powered, old old boats. I think they're originally like commissioned in you know nineteen seventy or something. So they're fifteen years old at this point, maybe even older. Anyway, so our job is the one aircraft that was flying was we dropped a smoke. At, the ships were kind of lined up, right? They were just kind of barely making headway. They were in a line. And our job was to drop a smoke at one mile and then another one at five miles. So one mile smoke was the sprint finish line. And the five mile smoke was the finish line for the um, and the marathon, I guess, the long distance run. So we dropped our smoke and the Admiral came on across the ship saying, Mark, it's at go. And off they went, right? Well, uh you know, the ships go, the Knox-class frigates really, really slow. They were left in the dust fairly quickly. The four gas turbine ships, the two Spruance, the two Perry-class frigates, um, you know, they leapt out ahead. Um, the Perry-class frigates are really the fastest because they're smallest, lightest. Um, it was a dead heat between them between them who run this, who won the sprint, okay? But this is, this is flat out. All these ships are running... You know, they got the pedal to the metal, right? They're floored. They're going. Well, <clears throat> it took the carrier a little bit of while to get up some steam. But by the time the ships made it to the five-mile marker, the carrier was far in front of everybody else. <laughs> and the 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 Connie, like I said, was conventionally powered. She's powered by steam. You know, she burned diesel fuel marine to make steam and turn her screws. Um, she got going. Uh, she easily got over thirty five knots, easily. 
because I know the maximum speed of our ship was 35 knots. The maximum speed of the, the little frigates is like 37 knots, and she passed them all up. So, <clears throat> you know, the ships passed the, the, the five-mile smoke, and the carrier took like another two miles to slow down. The other ships, the, the gas turbine-powered ships, uh, performed what they call a crashback. Um, the Spruance-class destroyer and the Perry-class frigates have the capability of going from full speed to all stop dead in the water in two ship lengths. Okay? Because they can reverse the pitch on their propellers and, and stop. So that's, you know, for our ship, that's like 500 feet, 600 feet. That's pretty quick from going from 35 knots to zero in the water in 500 feet. The The... The consequence of stopping so fast is where the term gets, where the crashback term comes from, is because all that wake that the ship was de- was generating comes pouring over the back end of the ship when the ship stops, and this big wave of water catches up and just, you know, buries the the back of the ship in water. It's the, the little last piece of butt. It's not like it's going to sink or anything, but it's just kind of neat to see that the ship stops and you can feel it, you know, and and Boom, this pile of water comes over. Um, so watching that from there was kind of fun. All these ships just stopped dead in the water, and the carriers whoo, steaming along, trying to slow down. Um, like I said, took took her a couple miles. Um, and that's the last that's the last bit of fun I remember for the Tiger Cruise. That was, I want to say that was the event of the last day before we pulled in the next morning. Now, we knew the next day, the ship, ships typically like to show up first thing in the morning when they come home. Gives, you know, because everyone takes the rest of the day off, of course, if, as long as they're not on duty. You know, the family will meet them by the pier, uh, that sort of thing. But we were the air department. We were the air wing. And in naval aviation, it's a tradition for the air wing to fly off of the ship. Aviation personnel do not walk off the ship if they can possibly avoid it. Now, the aircraft carrier, you know, all the squadron flies off. The officer, you know, the pilots and the air crew, they get to leave. The regular squadron people, they have to, those, they have to walk off the boat. I mean, the, the, it's logistically, I don't want to say it's impossible, but very, very difficult for a squadron of, say, Tomcats, F-14s at the time, right? That's what we were flying with. Could fly their entire squadron personnel off off the boat when the boat comes comes home after deployment. You know, that's all the maintainers and office people, all that. It's just not... It's, it's, it's hard. Um, I don't know if they do it or not. You know, maybe they get help with from the... the, the the COD, the carry on board delivery people, maybe they help them move some passengers off or maybe the helicopter squadrons help them. I don't know. All I know is that in, in our particular case, all we had was, all we had to move was like 15 people on our helicopter. When it's completely stripped can carry, um, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. So yeah, we only have 15 people and, our aircraft carries six 
So, you know, you do some quick math. And let's see, four pilots. So if we take our own six, six of our own people, that leaves nine people for other aircraft to, to, to get, take care of. So our squadron, it was kind of a, a tradition, at least when I was there, that when, the, when a ship was coming, when, a, when the de- a detachment was coming back from deployment and they were going to do their fly off, the squadron would send three aircraft out there to pick up everybody. So everybody on the de- uh, uh, in the air wing, such as it was, all 15 of us would fly off the ship that day. No one, no one, no aviation personnel would have to walk off the ship. We would all get our our chance to fly off. So that's that's um, that's the way they did. They sent out three extra aircraft. So there was four aircraft total carrying all of us, all fifteen of us in various you know, states or whatever. And they they did a they did us proud. And then we'd we flew in, you know, like in a parade formation, you know. F- Fly down the strip, the four the four helicopters in a row, land, try to land at the same time, taxi, turn, you know, taxi to the uh, to the shutdown area, all turn at once. You know, they brief that to, you know, make it all look good for for the family that was um, friends and family were waiting for all these people. Okay. Now the downside to uh, to doing this on a Saturday was that. You know, the only people from the squadron there to meet us were those who were on duty. <laughs> uh, if a de- detachment came home on a weekday, everyone was there, and everyone would, you know, you'd welcome back your friends and whatever. But this was on a weekend, so there wasn't that many squadron personnel there. Now, lots of our, lots of the personnel in our debt, our detachment, you know, they had family there waiting for them. I was kind of an exception. I did not expect any family to be there for me. My my mom, she's living in the Boston area. My father's living in, um, well, shoot. At that point, he was living in Holland. So my father was going to be there. My mom was going to be there. My brother, he's too young. I have, I have no aunts and uncles in the local area. They're all far away. So I did not have any expectation for any family to meet me there. And, I, you know, at first I was kind of okay with it. Okay, but... When you land and you show up and there and there's this big kind of whoop de doo welcoming all these people home, and most everyone had somebody there waiting for them. Uh, it was you know you kind of got to you right. Oh shoot! I guess I guess I'm not as tough as I thought I was. Uh, oh well, uh, you know whatever. So you know I tried to whatever squadron friends I had. Um, I was that were there. I was trying to, you know, go say, "Hey, how's it going? How'd I been? How'd I been? What did I miss?" That sort of thing. Well, and and the the squadron commanding officer, he's there. They have cake for us. They have champagne for us. You know, welcome back. You know, it was a good trip. You know, no one got hurt. Didn't crash. None of those things. You know, time to get back to, you know, regular, you know, shore based routine. So here I am, I'm, you know, I'm kind of wandering around, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, catching up with whoever's there, and I feel this tap on my shoulder, and I turn around, and there's my cousin, standing in, 
navy whites. And I'm like, and I'm like, what, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? I was completely flabbergasted that he had joined the Navy. I mean, he was four years younger than me or three and a half years younger than me. Uh, I had no, uh, I had never talk, tried to talk him into or, you know, glamorize Navy life or anything like that. I wasn't, I never pitched him hard on, you know, doing Navy things. And here he was in his uniform <laughs> Saying, hey, I found you. I was like, what the heck? And and the really crazy thing was, is he had just graduated from basic training the day before. Navy, Navy basic training graduations are on Fridays. So he had just graduated from basic training the day before. I'm like, how the heck did you get here? And, um, you know, his uh, uh, uncle on his dad's side, because his mom and my mom were sisters. So that's the cousin aspect. So it was... An uncle on his other side of his family was living in San Diego and he picked him up and he was taking him around and, you know, it was Uncle Roger and generally nice guy and he brought him to find me. So my outlook for coming home from deployment, you know, improved drastically in that in that very surprised, uh, surprise, surprise. I mean, I was, it was just crazy. I mean, I, I was full on looking not looking forward to, but expecting to spend my time off the Saturday, the Sunday, you know, Monday, start looking for a place to live, you know, all those things dealing with, you know, the pain of not the pain, but the hassle of of when you come back from deployment. And instead I got a chance to throw it all out the window and spend the weekend with my, with my cousin who just graduated from basic training and had the weekend off. It was, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, and and it's hard to and it's also hard to describe the sense of of when deployment when you're done when when we got to Hawaii for those two days to pick up you know the tigers that's your first setting foot on american soil in almost 6 months and hawaii's just got that tropical feel and you still kind of feel like you're on vacation and you're just kind of like Wow, is it really? It's not. Is it really almost over? And you you start eating. You know, you look forward to eating uh, again American fast food. It's just crazy because the food on the ship is decent institutional food. And when you when you're in port, you eat local cuisine. You want to sample local stuff at restaurants or whatever. But you come back to the United States and you want McDonald's or Subway or you know those kind of things and. That's what we did, and it and <clears throat> so you, it, it in Hawaii, it's starting to dawn on you that maybe the deployment's really over. Maybe you know you're going to be back home because you've been away for six months, right? And then you get to San Diego, and you know you fly off the boat and you land at the squadron, and the the sense, okay, now you know you're done, and you know you're. When you come back from deployment, especially if it's your first one, there's there's a change in the way you're treated and an expectation that now you're, while you're not senior, you're not, you're not a know nothing. You're not you're experienced, you know, veteran, right? And you're expected to partake your newly found or impart your newly found. I don't want to say wisdom, but experience. You're supposed to be able to start relaying that to those who haven't gone. 
you're supposed to take your experience that's made you better at whatever and use it to further the advances, you know, for the advances, listen to my talk, uh, to to better your command and your squadron. The fact that you are now uh, uh, an air crewman that's gone on deployment, you know how the world works at sea. It's part of your duty to ready those who haven't gone, ready them to know what to expect. And, um, you know, that that's, it's almost like that first, after the cake and champagne is done, it's like, okay, your, 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 your status has changed and it's reflected fairly quickly and, you know, time to get to work, right? So, I don't know, there's, it, I don't know, it's just a crazy sense of, wow, it's done and now what? You know, the, your, your time on home guard is no longer the same as it was before you left. That's, that's really the long and short of it. So, um, that's pretty much it for deployment. Um, we've gone, we did saw some things. We've come back. Um, it took me four hours (laughs) of telling, of telling the story. This is part four. Um, and with that, my story or my, yeah, my story of, of my time in naval aviation comes to a close. Uh, this podcast is not going away. It's just that from now on, if we, if what you will be hearing, will be not my stories anymore. Uh, it's going to be other people's stories and, and that is now my second phase I've gotten used to telling my stuff it's it's down now it's time to start sharing other people's experiences and other people's dealings and and other people's and other people's stories and that's what's coming that that that's what's coming next so but this is it this is it for me oh you'll still hear my voice I'm sorry I'm I'm trying to find an elegant way and I'm failing. I'm finding, trying to find an elegant way of, of trying, drawing my series of stories to a close. And I'll just leave it at that. My story is done and it is now time to move on other people's story on to other people's stories. And the next episode will contain, uh, we're going to start. I, I mentioned this on the last episode and I'm going to repeat it here that the next episode will have our guest, our first guest, He's a student naval aviator. He is going through the the training pipeline as we speak. Uh, this first episode was recorded probably back in August when he was finishing up primary, and he had just selected for advanced. Um, so, but we'll get his story of his commissioning, his pre-flight indoctrination school, and primary. That'll be the first thing we'll talk about. Uh, and that'll be the next episode, and it'll probably come out in uh, in a couple weeks. It's already recorded, so it's not like we have to wait for it to be recorded. Um, we just kind of put it together and, and first let you adjust, uh, absorb this this last this last story of deployment. Um, let's see. I guess all that leaves for me is to beg you. No, not beg. Tell you that I have email addresses, and I enjoy getting emails. Um, if you want a quick response, send email to mike at navalair.net. 
If you want a response, to wait. If you want to wait a week or two for a response, send it to navalaircrew at gmail.com. I check the navalair.net email address more often than I check the Gmail address. I know that's bad, but I'm. But that's just kind of what I've gotten into. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, there's. Uh, you can leave feedback on iTunes. Uh, I am, and those are your two choices. The there is a um, a forum on navalair.net that will probably not be there very much longer. The navalair.net website itself will be getting a redesign. Uh, the forum, you know, you need lots more listeners than I got for a forum to be successful. So forum being there with nobody talking on it, it just kind of highlights the few of you that are out there listening to my words. So I'd rather get emails from you or you can leave iTunes feedback if you found this podcast in the music store. Uh, so yeah, Mike at NavalAir.net, NavalAirCrew at gmail.com or iTunes feedback. Those are your those are your best choices for letting me know if you like it, don't like it, or what you might want to hear, any kind of particular stories you might want to hear about. We can see if we can find somebody that's experienced what you're looking to find out about, and we can get them to come in here and tell us about it. So I think that'll do it for this uh, final episode of this series on Mike's stories. <laughs> Uh, please come back in two weeks to hear um, the story of, of Josh, our student naval aviator. And uh, so I'm going to sign off. Until next time, stay safe and God bless. God bless.